The Conversationalist is a podcast about the history of science from the 19th century to today, brought to you by the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. Okay, let's get this party started. In the 19th century, many scientific institutions hosted what were known as conversazione, evening gatherings to showcase science and the arts. These events ranged from the outrageously raucous to the excruciatingly boring, but they were united in bringing together experts and amateurs, professional scientists, and the general public for lectures, displays, performances, and, of course, conversation. In this podcast, we invite you to join our version of these classic Victorian affairs, our very own cocktail party with experts on the history of science. Conversazione were about information, but they were also very much about entertainment. So we ask our guests in each episode to regale us with a story about the history of science that will captivate us for a drink or two. So, uh, welcome to our podcast, Conversazioni, Marcus. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me, and cheers. Cheers. Uh, you probably hardly need an introduction, but um, would you like to introduce yourself a bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, and also what your affiliation with the ConSciCom project is? So, uh, my name's Marcus de Sotoy, and I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, but I'm also the Simone Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, um, which is uh, really the role I'm playing um, in the collaboration with ConSciCom. So, uh, you know, I sort of describe this role a bit like being an ambassador for science and, f- and for Oxford as well, um, because science has become kind of this superpower, uh, which is... Um, you know, affecting so many different parts of our society. And it's really important that we have ambassadors from this superpower to try and uh, mediate uh, and, and involve people in actually what this impact will be, the decision-making process. I mean, if you don't understand the science, you're kind of disenfranchised from the debate. So, so yeah, I think that's um, kind of describes... I'm a research mathematician creating new maths, but I'm also an ambassador for, for my world of science as well. For sure, and that fits very well within the themes of ConSciCom, I think. Um, very much so. I think that um, you know, the spirit of this whole uh, uh, project is the, the role that both scientists and the public can play together in making scientific advances. Um, and that's really, I thought, was quite a new idea. Um, I thought that uh, you know before it was just scientists in their labs doing things and we just had this really great new idea to do citizen science. Um, and that was really the exciting thing that I learned through being engaged with this project, that no, actually this has been going on for ages. The public have always been interested in gathering data, whether it be uh, rainfall, uh, um, or looking at orchids, or reporting on firework displays, or uh, or eclipses. So, so it was quite a um, you know I learnt something by being involved in this project that actually the public have always been a partner in doing science. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like I've learned that too, being involved in this project. I didn't, I didn't realize what historical legacy there was for crowdsourcing and crowd citizen science. And I think it's been really important because this has provided us with an ability to do longitudinal studies, which uh, I think um, is also a very important thing which is coming out of this. That that you know we can look at orchids today, look at orchids um, in the past, and actually combine the data to understand um, you know global changes in climate because of uh, the change in the kind of behaviour of the orchids. So that's why you know it's really important for future generations that we're involved in collecting data because in 200 years time that might give us a, a you know, very different insight into what's going on at the present then. Absolutely, yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, so I didn't introduce myself. I'm Kira Allman, and I'm the media officer for the ConSciCom project. And uh, we're here in the Royal Society tonight um, having this conversation. And we're here because you are giving a talk this evening on the wisdom of the crowd. Could you tell me a little bit about the title of that talk? Where did it come from? What does it mean? Well, I think uh, this is very relevant at this particular time in our politics, whether the crowd really is wise or not. Um, uh, but it came from actually somebody who believed that the crowd wasn't wise and shouldn't be given kind of the vote and democracy mm. didn't really work, which is uh, Francis Galton. Um, and he uh, thought that if people made guesses, for example, on the weight of an ox in a country fair, then unless they had specialist knowledge, that they would actually bias the guess. And if you took the average it would be way off. So he was extremely surprised to discover that although people had really wild guesses from really minute to way overestimating, when you took the average, it was remarkably close to the actual value. So this kind of started this idea that, well, maybe one individual may have a wild guess and be you know, so far off, but when you average it, perhaps the crowd is collectively wise. Um, so this evening, I want to sort of explore uh, when is the crowd wise? When are there problems that the crowd really isn't good at? When are, when are they good? What are the kind of conditions for a, a crowd to, to have wisdom? Um, but I think the most exciting thing that we're doing this evening is very interactive. We're actually going to mm -hmm. get the crowd voting on things, giving their views um, through a piece of software that we're using during the event. We're also doing this online as well. So we're not just got the crowd here at the Royal Society. We're really going for a global crowd. I've had people on Twitter um, today from across the world who are Amazing. interested in logging in. Um, so I think it'd be very interesting just to see the, the data that we're going to collect and just see what problems they're good at, what they're not. Um, and actually, I've got one experiment that I'm really fascinated in because um, we're getting the people coming in, and we've had people online, guessing how many jelly beans there are in a jar. But not just one jar, three different jars. Because uh, it's my um, idea that maybe we have good intuition about certain shaped jars, so in a classic sort of cylindrical right. jar. But I've got two other weird jars, kind of blobby <laughs> one, and then one which is a torus, which is like a bagel, it's got a hole in. And I wonder, we don't encounter these sort of shapes very often. So by the end of this evening, we're going to see whether our crowd here at the Royal Society, do they have a good intuition about all three shapes? Or is it just the one that they encounter sort of quite a lot in their everyday life, pouring out beans out of a, a tin, that's a cylindrical shape? Right. Perhaps they build up a collective wisdom that on other shapes they actually don't have the, that intuition. 
That's really interesting. And this is a challenge I think a lot of people will have encountered as well at some point in their lives, whether in primary school or at a village fete or something like this, the jelly beans in a jar challenge. Well, it's hilarious because um, I uh, did uh, something about this on a program I made for the BBC and um, somebody... Uh, emailed me and said, I, I actually, we had this competition, guess, guess the number of jelly beans, and the prize was actually a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. <laughs> and all he did was wait till the end of the um, fair, um, averaged up quickly all the guesses, guessed the average, and he won. And he said, I should probably send you 10% of these sunglasses, yeah. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately it's not going to be possible. It's but, not going to um, be a very useful pair of sunglasses no, then, exactly. is it? Right. <laughs> Um, so are there, you've kind of touched on this already, but are there certain questions, uh, scientific or mathematical, that we do better answering when more people participate in that process? Well, I think this is particularly relevant to citizen science projects where we have just too much data for individual scientists to be able to to um, go through and classify. So the classic example is the uh, the Zooniverse project that we're looking at galaxies, Galaxy Zoo. Uh, we've just got so many images um, that it's just not possible for one PhD student to classify them. So that's really helpful. It's, it also taps into something that humans are very good at, which is spotting patterns in pictures so they can mm -hmm. see well this is a spiral galaxy a spherical one so I think where there's a lot of data um, it, it is important um, but it's interesting the range of different sci citizen science projects so sometimes um, actually uh, there's an example of protein folding game called fold it um, this is one where most of the data is thrown away but the idea is that there might be one person out there who has very good intuition for folding a particular protein mm. and once you've got that particular protein fold um, you, you just need one good guess out of uh, you know a hundred thousand or something and, and you've solved the problem so so that's um, again tapping into numbers but uh, unlike uh, the galaxy zoo you're throwing away most data and only one will actually be good at the game and you will take their data. I think my own subject of mathematics is a real challenge because there have been projects, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this, um, that uh, have tried to get citizens doing maths problems. But there's a very high entry level to, to actually even understanding what the math problem is, let alone solving it. So, so um, this project Polymath, I think uh, I wouldn't really call a genuine citizen science project. It probably involved 20 people who knew what they were doing collaborating, which mm -hmm. is a change for mathematics because we're often doing things very much in isolation. But I think um, to call that, you know, the public helping to do maths. Um, uh, so sometimes I think expertise is still necessary to enter some of these challenges. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting point about sometimes needing to go to the crowd to find uh, sort of that needle in a haystack talent that you need, uh, for instance, the ability to fold a particular protein or see it in that particular way. Sometimes you just need a large group of people in order to find the person who's capable of doing that. Yeah, exactly. So um, that that's one of the things, tapping into a, a kind of diversity of opinions such yeah. that one might actually um, have the right answer. But, but it, the interesting thing is you, asking the question in the right way such that the person who knows doesn't get swamped by mm -hmm. a lot of people leading the rest astray so it's 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 very important to frame the actual way you're collecting data well enough that you can pick out actually what's useful yeah for sure um, 
So you actually sometimes use historical anecdotes in your talks. Um, and, uh, you know, we started this conversation, you mentioned, um, you know, how being involved in this project has made you think maybe a little bit more about the connections between the work you do and uh, historical examples. And I'm just wondering, do you have a favorite s historical story about math that you like yourself or that you like to tell? Uh, yes, I think my hero uh, mathematically is a character called Everest Galois. He created the language that I use every day, day as a research mathematician. Um, I study symmetry. Symmetry is generally a very visual thing, you think, but this guy, Everest Galois, changed the kind of geometric into something algebraic, gave mm -hmm. us a language to understand symmetry. Mm. It's called group theory. But he had an incredibly romantic life, so, uh, or tragic life, actually. Um, uh, he did this while still at school at the age of 18. Um, the French Academy couldn't recognize the breakthrough he'd made. He got very disillusioned with uh, doing mathematics. He was got very involved in revolutionary politics. Um, uh, this is uh, you know, early 19th century. And um, eventually fell in with a crowd and um, was killed in a duel at the age of 20. Um, uh, and we think the duel might have been over, well, it might have been the establishment trying to get rid of this troublesome revolutionary. Could have been uh, fight over love. There seemed to be a woman involved, Stephanie. There often um, is. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> or else uh, there is a suggestion that he even staged his own death in order to try and spark a new revolution. Um, so, mm. But the night before the duel, he spent the whole night realizing that he was probably going to get shot that morning, um, writing up his ideas, trying to articulate the breakthrough he made. And uh, wow. the documents that were left on his table really are the beginning of the subject that I use every day called group theory. Wow. That is an amazing story. Yeah, he's, he's um, yeah, yeah. But there are great stories. I mean, I think it's really important to go back to history because something like mathematics, especially, tends people think it's sort of um, uh, handed down in some textbook from the sky, and they don't realize that it has a cultural context. It merges out of particular periods in history, particular people, and I think going back for me, even uh, using those stories to help tell uh, the scientific ideas has helped me even to understand my own science that much better to understand, yeah, well, why were they interested in this? What sparked them? Understanding that helps me to, to go in, a, in new directions myself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good case for interdisciplinarity in our thinking. I think uh, for those of us who are in humanities, as I am, and in STEM subjects, as, as you are. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that I love about Oxford, is that we really try and encourage a cross-disciplinary um, conversation. So, you know, in my college, in New College, I will often be sitting next to the English fellow, and I remember having an incredibly exciting conversation. I had to do a talk about Shakespeare and maths, and I knew nothing <laughs> about, oh my gosh, what has Shakespeare got to do with maths? Um, but he gave me such amazing uh, things, like um, every time there's magic involved, so um, in Midsummer Night's Dream, you don't have it in iambic pentameter in tens, but it goes down to sevens. So mm. there are seven syllables used. If Shakespeare wants you to recognize something as important, he moves from 10 to 11. So to be or not to be, that is the question. It's actually 11 syllables, and you go, whoa, that's so I think it's so important to have these conversations because um, we learn so much from each other. We ask new questions about our own subject by having a, those interactions. Um, and it's a tragedy of our school system that we compartmentalize 
our subject so much and people say I'm a historian I'm a mathematician mm. I'm a musician I'm a physicist there's so much fusion between these and we really need to get back to a more holistic view about education yeah we really do spend a, a disproportionate amount of time walling ourselves off when it's important I think this is quite relevant to this idea of the wisdom of the crowd because it's important sometimes to be an expert to specialize I Absolutely. mean uh, so you do need to spend a lot of time uh, in one particular area really going deep and far into that but I think we need to combine that the best the best is when you have a mix of sure. the, the specialism with the with the general and that's quite tough and that's why often you need a crowd to try and, and or a collaboration to do that one person can't do that but a, a group uh, can provide many different strands we can be so much more multi-dimensional that's a really good point um do you see ways in which your work going forward, your own academic research going forward, can involve a greater number of people? Or is it not that kind of work and, and why? I think this is the real challenge with mathematics, that um, to, uh, the, the entry level is high to understand the problems. Even my PhD students, I often feel like they're spending several years really just even understanding what I'm asking them. Um, right. So I think this is, I think that's why I though, why I, I moved into um, wanting to do engagement with my subject, because I was getting frustrated that um, people didn't really understand uh, what this was doing, why it was helpful for society, why new technology emerges out of very um, a blue sky thinking. Um, I, I'm not target driven by a particular application, but the kind of just search for knowledge um, that drives me is then has impact uh, uh, ultimately on society technology. So, um, so I think it, you know it is a real challenge to get people in, involved genuinely as doing science and mathematics. But yeah. but I think um, uh, next best is to give them an appreciation of what it is that's going on and why it will impact on them in, in many different ways. Absolutely, and that's that's why we're here tonight, uh, to is, get more yes. people involved. Um, and obviously now you do a lot of this kind of work, you do a lot of public engagement work that's outward facing about mathematics and science. Um, why is this kind of work important, especially now in the face of um, the antagonism that we see in a lot of places uh, towards expertise? Yeah, I think this is exactly why we need to do it. Um, we need to make our voice heard such that um, it isn't drowned out by people easily dismissing uh, vaccination as something mm. dangerous for my kids. No, it's very important that we explain why vaccination um, is for everybody's uh, good, for example. Um, so I think that uh, it, it is a responsibility of scientists to actually take some time. It should be part of their job. And uh, for many years, it wasn't considered part of their job. Um, uh, it was considered an extra if you engage mm. with the public. And I think that's, uh, that is changing. But this is a, a highly scientific age with science impacting so massively on society. Um, and we, we have learned really here at this Royal Society that it's about engagement. Um, it's about listening to what uh, the public's concern is, mm -hmm. society. Society is many different things as well. It isn't just one thing. So, um, uh, so I think it's about a dialogue. And that's really important. And, but you need the scientists to be involved in that dialogue uh, in order that um, I think once people feel that they're being trusted with information, they're, they're more open to, to new ideas. What do you hope that people will take away from this event this evening? Uh, or what do you expect them to find most surprising, perhaps? I think um, it's, uh, it's about a nuance 
the, to the understanding that sometimes a crowd is very good, sometimes it isn't, and it's very important. Uh, it's, it's not black and white, and that one needs to understand the, the context and the question uh, in order to see, is this something that we need to ask the crowd about? Will it help? Or actually, might this be misleading uh, and take us off in a wrong direction? I think that uh, given current day politics, um, <laughs> uh, you know, many of us will recognize that perhaps we shouldn't always ask the crowd um, uh, what we should do next. Um, yeah. um, but, uh, but, you know, that said, uh, we live in a democracy. So it's, it's all about, does democracy work? When does it work well? Um, and I'm going to give some examples where politically um, taking power away from politicians and, and so-called experts can be very uh, positive. Um, there are examples of uh, participatory budgeting in Brazil from 1989, which shows that actually involving the public in deciding uh, budgets for a city um, has had very positive benefits. Mm. Um, also, uh, to get people involved in politics, for example, in Ontario, they've uh, actually just almost like doing jury service. You, If you're asked, you have to take part. Mm. And just having that mixture of di diverse voices has helped to um, make m much better political decisions. So it's very interesting, this kind of uh, tension between um, do you centralize or do you decentralize and when is it good and when does it not work? Yeah, that's actually really interesting because I think we've been talking so far very much about how positive the crowd is and uh, the crowd as a force um, for good and for uh, finding solutions to problems. But sometimes uh, the crowd also lends itself to things like groupthink, which I think this we, we see as being about. very negative. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to, this is why a crowd is wise when it actually um, has a diverse range, an independent range of opinions. Um, uh, the trouble mm. with something like social media is that independence starts to disappear and uh, you start to be led by the crowd. And so there are you know, very clear experiments done, and I'm going to illustrate one of them tonight, um, about uh, conformity, that if you start to hear too many people say things, you start to, to not trust your own uh, view and you start to follow the crowd, um, even mm. though you know they're wrong. Mm. Um, so that's uh, where something like social media can destroy um, the valuable independence that a crowd can often have. And I think that your talk is going to be available online after the fact at some point the Royal Society is going to put it up. So if listeners want to see these experiments in action, they should be available on the internet somewhere at some point. Yes, it will be available on the Royal Society um, website. And um, uh, unfortunately, at that point, you won't be able to, to vote and be part of the crowd. Um, but we're trying to get as many people involved as part of the crowd tonight as we can. Yeah, and at least you'll be able to see the results, which yeah. will certainly be interesting. Well, thank you so much, Marcus, for talking with me today. This has been a really interesting conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure. You can watch a video of Marcus's talk on the Royal Society website. That's royalsociety.org. Or on the Royal Society YouTube channel. We gave our bartenders the night off for this episode, but I'd recommend pouring yourself another glass of your preferred potion and following up this episode by watching the Wisdom of the Crowd recording online. Find out just how wise the crowd really was in guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar and answering a few more challenging questions as well. The Conversationalist is a podcast from the Constructing Scientific Communities Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It is based at the Universities of Oxford and Leicester in partnership with the Natural History Museum, the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and the Royal Society. For our most recent podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.